Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Our Memphis History. Today, we're going to be talking about the Trail of Tears, and we have two experts on that subject sitting around the table, Graydon Swisher and my friend Jason Terrell. Uh, Joe's here also. This is Mark White. We're going to jump right into it. I'd like you guys to go around and just uh, give me 20 or 30 seconds about who you are, what you do, and uh, let's get started. Graydon? Uh, I'm Graydon Swisher II and uh, been in Memphis uh, most of my life. I moved to Memphis when I was in the second grade. And uh, my family did a lot of traveling uh, on vacation and uh, we would go different historical places and it developed a uh, love of being there, seeing that, saying I've been there, done that, uh, you know, firsthand. Right. And so I love, still love to do that and uh, you know, tried to raise my kids doing that. and. Uh, you know, just you know, for some reason, I've loved the uh, early American explorers, right. uh, French explorers, mm -hmm. and uh, early American. One of my ancestors was uh, captured by the Indians oh, okay. uh, back in the 1700s. We'll, we'll need and, to talk more about that for sure. <laughs> but um, um, you know, I've just been with the Trail of Tears Association since they first started uh, over 25 years ago, wow. and uh, you know, just trying to follow the trail and uh, you know, pr promote it. And, and you know, somebody's coming, walking the trail, come, coming back or going whichever way they're going. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm kind of the local yeah, uh, the person okay. contact, uh, telling yeah. about Memphis and what, yeah. what happened here. And you're also on the Shelby County Historical Commission, are you not? Correct, I'm on the Shelby County Historical Commission, West Tennessee Historical Society. All right. um, Good. Great, thank you, we're well, welcome. Uh, we're honored to have you here. Jason? Well, hello, my name is Jason Terrell. I'm a, uh, also a member of the Trail of Tears Association along with Graydon. We're the, I think, the two representatives on this end of the state, frankly. Uh, I've been a uh, genealogist for about 30 years or more, so I come, come at this from a little bit different perspective. I've been doing family history for over 30 years. I'm an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, um, and I served on the board for the Cherokee Phoenix, which is the tribal newspaper for a number of years. Um, and as a genealogist, someone who specializes in Native American family history, um, you can't study genealogy without becoming a student of history, or at least not if you're doing your job right. And so I've become a, a student of Cherokee history, and, and again, if you're studying Cherokee history, you can't, in this area, get away without understanding the, our neighbors, which were the Chickasaws and the Choctaws and some of the people on the Muscogee Creeks, some of the people we're going to talk about today. So I've spent a number of years studying those folks as well. And, and, um, and so Graydon and I both like to get out there and, and make sure we talk about that aspect of Memphis's history and the history of the Southeast whenever we can. Graydon does a fantastic job through the historical um, societies and whatnot. And I, I kind of come in through genealogy and family history and helping people to look at, a, at that from a very personal level, uh, what may or may not be be in their family histories. So, Great. Well, it's wonderful to have you here, Joe. I think you're going to kick us off here with a question. Or two. I'm, I'm very glad that Jason's here because Jason's a member and has been of OurMemphisHistory.com. And, and Graydon and I have been friends since we both worked emergency management in, in the early 2000s. So I'm sitting here with, with two guys I'm very comfortable with and know pretty well. Uh, I'm Joe Lowry. I co-produce OurMemphisHistory.com uh, with my partner over there, Mark. Uh, today we're going to talk about which tribes were in the southeast and in the Memphis area and what is actually the Trail of Tears, why Native people moved from their land or were, were removed from their land, uh, which tribes were affected, uh, when did this occur, uh, how was Tennessee involved in, in all of this, and, and how did this affect Memphis and the Mid-South area? What was the impact uh, on the tribes? Uh, what about the tribes in the Southeast? Were they affected also? And what's being done to keep history alive? So go for it, guys. Let's, let's try and cover these topics and see if we can cover them in depth. I've got a map of um, a 1900 map showing uh, the Cherokee territory uh, before the Revolutionary War. And it actually 
encompass like 81 million acres, including seven states or nine states, some folks are nine, but West Virginia wasn't a state at the time. <laughs> uh, but uh, it shows how, uh, you know, goes into, you know, all the way up Kentucky, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Georgia, uh, Alabama, and on the map it shows that uh, it, it basically stops at the Tennessee River, and because uh, you know, then you're getting into Cherokee, you know, the Chickasaw area, and um, you know, you've got different different tribes that um, the Creek Indians were in Alabama, the uh, Choctaws were in Mississippi, and Cher the Chickasaws were West Tennessee and North of Mississippi. Their their principal home was in in North Mississippi in the uh, Tupelo. Uh, Montauk area down there, and uh, so it's a thing that a lot of the tribes' claims to the land overlapped, but uh, you know in the southeast here where they're, uh, you know, we've got four of the five civilized tribes, when they were removed came through Memphis, and that's pretty unique from the standpoint of uh, the total big picture of all the Indian removal based on the Indian Removal Act. Mm -hmm. But, um, so it's a thing that, you know, this, this is a thing that took time over a period of time that uh, uh, the Cherokees lost, lost land. And, uh, you know, when in the 1830s, you know, it was down to uh, 160,000 acres, uh, you know, basically in Tennessee, North Georgia, and a little bit over in Arkansas. Over in uh, North Carolina. So I, I think it's important to 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 put some scope on it. So let's let's think about this in terms of time and history. Um, we talk about the Trail of Tears, and, and I think I want to point this out first and foremost. We tend to think about the Trail of Tears with a capital T as the forced removal of the Cherokee or the last of the Cherokee people from the eastern homelands that occurred in 1838 and 1839. Um, but what we realize when we look into the history is, as is the case with most things, it wasn't, the, the whole removal uh, period was not uh, strictly about the Trail of Tears. Now I'm gonna get some flack from friends of mine back home, Cherokees, who uh, we, we've spent a lot of time focusing on our history. But there was a lot of, that impacted this entire region all the states that Graydon mentioned, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, uh, North South Carolina, I mean it was all, all those states were impacted. And it, it really started at the beginning of the country with George Washington. Um, when the country began to expand uh, out of the colonies, they realized that there was a lot of land and a lot of resources to be had. And uh, each of the early administrations in the country really had to deal with this issue of, well, what do we do when we want to grow? Where are we going to go? And they were already bumping into people when Virginia was the western border, Virginia and Tennessee. Um, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, battles that occurred and, and skirmishes and things between native people and, and uh, Americans at that point. And so it became this kind of running issue that each president and his administration would have to deal with. Um, and it culminated in 1830 when Andrew Jackson, um, who was certainly not the first person to talk about Indian removal, but uh, as it turns out was the last, managed to push an act through Congress called the Indian Removal Act. And it was signed in, I believe, May of 1830. And what that did is it didn't start the process of removing tribal peoples because that process had already begun. In fact, there were Cherokees already in Arkansas Territory by that time and eventually would move into what's now eastern Oklahoma. What it did is it put the official stamp on that and it put the official stamp on the government going out talking to these tribes and saying okay let's deal with this issue once and for all let's move you out and we now have the authority of the president and the authority of the, of the Congress to go out and do this and so that put the cap on it and as Greg pointed out uh, the, the rest of that decade of the 1830s was spent negotiating with tribes, moving tribes. I mean, 
you can imagine how many thousands upon thousands of people we're talking about. Uh, if you removed the, the citizens of, of the northern part of any state now, you can imagine what, that, what kind of a logistical nightmare that would be. Um, so it, it really set in motion um, a, an incredibly tragic decade that um, affected Memphis because at this, at this period in history, Memphis was sort of the nexus. If you were going to go west, unless you were further north or way further south, you were going to go through Memphis, yeah. as we do. We, we, we did talk about five different tribes, so let's go ahead and talk ex explicitly about which five tribes those were. Let's put those out there, shall we? So the tribes that, that you, there were a lot of tribes in the southeast, we want to say that, because there were smaller tribes throughout history. When we're talking about the five civilized tribes, so-called, we're talking about the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Cherokee, the Creek, and the Seminole, and I'd say Muscogee Creek, I should add to that. And those were the larger tribal groups in the Southeast. There are a number of smaller tribes that over the years uh, were either eliminated completely by war or disease, or eventually found refuge with one of these larger tribal groups. But by the time the 1830s came along, uh, after the land sessions that Graydon referred to and the amount of territory that had been removed from those tribes, those are the, those are the big groups that the government had to deal with. Okay, so that's the five tribes. So Graydon, tell us a little bit more about that. Where would you, where would you take off from knowing that that's the five tribes, that, or the five civilized, as you call them, tribes, um, and then the smaller ones? What's next from that? Well, it's a, the issue that the Native Americans had to deal with is the reality of, um, you know, the immigration problem <laughs> with all these white folks. Um, so immigration problems is not anything new, but uh, it's a thing that uh, when they passed the bill in uh, 1830, Indian Removal Act, uh, you know, it took them a year or two for most of the tribes to set up treaties and make, make treaty to, uh, you know, give up their land and and uh, you know, get compensation for moving, uh, moving west of the Mississippi. Um, the, in this area, the Choctaws were the first to leave, and then the Chickasaws came next, and then the Creeks, and um, uh, most, you know, a lot of the Creeks from North Alabama, you know, came came this way, and each one of these national tribes has their own. Uh, individual trail of tears or removal trail. Now, you know, we're, we're addressing the chickens, you know, the Cherokee uh, tribe, which trail came through Memphis, but it's, um, they all had the same problems, same issues, having to give up their homeland and, uh, and move to an unknown location, and, mm -hmm. and it, was, it was hard to do and, and very taxing. So, um, you know, again, four of the five tribes, you know, came through Memphis uh, on the land route. And uh, uh, Seminoles, which, you know, Florida, most of those that were able to capture and, and take by boat uh, or the water route uh, over to the uh, mouth of Mississippi, up to Mississippi, then up to uh, uh, Arkansas River, uh, into Oklahoma. So it was a thing that uh, it took several years, and most of them agreed to, to leave and left on their own accord. Um, but it was uh, the Cherokees, they can't make us move. This is crazy to you know, think we can you know, make a whole nation of you know, 16,000 people uh, you know, just up and move. Right. So that's, that's our issue. Um, you know, the Cherokees. You resist it, yeah. And so that's where, um, when they finally had the tr Treaty of uh, Nuachota, uh, they gave them two years to uh, make your make your arrangements right. and move. And then when that didn't, they didn't move on their own. <laughs> that's when the army came in. I, I think it's also important to remember that what some people don't realize is at this time. The government was dealing with the tribes not in the way you see in a lot of the movies. In a lot of the movies, you see a, a large group of, uh, of native people 
in blankets and nomadic and that, more like what the Western tribes were like. The Southeastern tribes was not like that. Um, in, in point of fact, the Southeastern tribes were very organized. The Cherokee in particular uh, had a constitution as early as the 1820s, had their own newspaper as early as the 1820s. Um, they had a tripartite government that was very much like the United States. They had a legislature, they had a judiciary, they had an executive branch. And so what there were several things that caused friction that, that ultimately led to the removal. One of them was the need for resources. But it wasn't just the fact that we need the resources and these people are here. These people in, in, in question, the tribes in question, were organized. They, they were running their own mills. They were running, uh, they had, in some cases, they had plantations. Uh, there was one in Georgia, uh, James Van, who was a well-known Cherokee, had uh, two plantations in Georgia that he was running, and he was uh, living a life very much similar to his plantation neighbors who were non-Indians in Georgia. Um, one of the earliest, uh, the early gold rush that we think about, we think about the gold rush at Sutter's Mill in California, but the first gold rush was actually in Cherokee country, uh, and so there was gold. You've heard the city Dahlonega, Georgia. Dahlonega means yellow or gold in Cherokee. Uh, and so there was, there was a, the issue was you had one government, the United States government, that was operating on European principles of, of land can be exchanged and traded and whatnot, and the sort of capitalist currency, and you had uh, nations that were organized, uh, Indian nations that were organized, who had governments, but who felt like that land was owned communally because nobody actually owned that land and that the resources belong communally, and that those resources were not to be given away or exploited in any way. And so you had these, these, this clash. And a lot of the states that were reacting to these tribes were reacting not just because they wanted something the native people had, but because they didn't want a government, another government living within their government. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of those early documents, you see that, that that the state governments were not liking the fact that there was another government living within their borders. They just couldn't handle that, especially when that government was not dealing with things like land the way that they did. So it, it was a resource thing, but it was also a clash of cultures. Um, and as Graydon pointed out, the reason the Cherokees were able to, to wage such an effective campaign against the removal was because they had lawyers and they had representatives um, who went to Washington and went to the Supreme Court and lobbied uh, the, the government on its own turf. Um, the the uh, case of Worcester versus Georgia, uh, which I think was 1832, uh, is the one that set the, the stage because essentially the, the Supreme Court said that the Cherokees were a domestic dependent nation and the government didn't have any say over what went on in there, uh, essentially, uh, to which President Jackson said, good luck with Enforcing that, uh, we're not going to. And so, to buttress what uh, Graydon was saying, that there was a fight going on, but it was, a, it was not a fight of these poor uh, uh, blanket-clad people over here in the corner. These were people who had law degrees, who had been, in some cases, to Dartmouth, and, and to, you know, they were, these were educated people that we had our own language at that point. The Cherokees had a uh, syllabary thanks to Sequoia, and so it was. this was an educated group of people. It wasn't sort of this backwards chasing folks down on the prairies kind of scenario. So. This is the actual, you talk about the Constitution being, you know, 1820s. Uh, this, this year, 19, or 1920, what is the year is this? 2021 um, is the uh, 200th anniversary of the syllabus, which is what Mm -hmm. The Cherokees could read and write, mm -hmm. and uh, you know had their own newspaper and things like that. So uh, this this year, uh, Sequoia is getting a lot of attention. Absolutely, and and yeah, you had people who were literate in, both in Cherokee and in English. Uh, people who again had been educated in in some of the best schools in the country, and so yeah, and and these tribes were also very savvy. The Chickasaw, we had a celebration here a couple of years back or a memorial. Um, that we'll talk about in detail a little bit more here in a bit, um, where we had representatives from the four tribes come down and uh, be present for a dedication of a marker. And one of the people I talked to was the representative from the Chickasaw Nation. And I love talking to him and 
some of his colleagues because they talk about how smart the Chickasaws, who were their closest neighbors to Memphis, how smart they were about the way they went about it. One of the reasons the Chickasaws didn't actually leave until 1837, and that wasn't the way it was supposed to be because their original treaty, that agreement, took place in 32, if I'm not mistaken. Greg, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, but the Chickasaws were really, really smart. <laughs> they negotiated and said, we're, we'll be glad, we'll, we'll move, but first we have to find land in the West that is equivalent to what we have here. And in legalese, they put it in legalese, which basically meant if we don't like where we're moving, we don't have to go. And what happened was they, the first treaty essentially went null and void because they couldn't find land that fit that criteria, which the government found a little disturbing because they thought, no, okay. Uh, the Choctaws had actually gotten out there and, and taken a lot of the land that the Chickasaws wanted. So, um, so again, I, I say that only to say these folks were, this was certainly not a court of equals, but, they, but the, the tribes were by no means outwitted or outmatched by this. Uh, outnumbered, maybe, but... Uh, but Question. Hmm? Was there violence involved in, in, in them intimidating and moving these folks out? Yes. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't most, probably mostly. The, yes, primarily by the states, actually, uh, because the states in Georgia, I think, was probably the... All of them were involved to some degree or another, but Georgia certainly was very aggressive. They, they essentially, the states decided if the federal government's not going to do anything, and this was prior to 1830, then we're going to do something. So what they would start to do is annex the territories. Um, the, the Georgia famously did what was called the, the lottery, the gold lottery, when they found gold on the land. And they essentially divided up some of the Cherokee territories and holdings and had a lottery and gave away the land and gave it to white folks. So one day some of these Cherokees woke up and a knock on the door and it was Somebody saying, hey, I just, I just won this land in the lottery. And I oh, there's a house here. This is very nice. Mm -hmm. So they started to extend their land. They started to extend uh, the laws over that territory. But because Indians were not citizens, mm -hmm. uh, they oftentimes didn't have representation. Uh, and these white neighbors who won this land and said they had it didn't particularly care about rights and courts. and So they were exploited yeah. oh, aggressively. Absolutely. Right? absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And, and land was taken away and there's a... I think today a lot of people don't want to talk about that and they don't want to think about it, but you know, these people were absolutely traumatized. Absolutely. Yeah. Just phys physically and mentally beaten. Absolutely. And, and that's why some of them had already left. By the 1830s, some had already left. There had been efforts treaties and things before that said, hey, if you'll move west, we'll pay for it. And, we'll, and so some of them had left. Some of them had moved west. Now, not the majority of, uh, I don't think the Choctaws or the Chickasaws did, but some of the Muscogee Creeks had, and certainly some of the Cherokees had moved as early as 1817. And it was it. They were getting worn down by this constant barrage of, of the, they, their neighbors were not getting along. Sometimes they'd have livestock stolen. Uh, there are actually a group of records called the claims, uh, Cherokee claims, uh, that after the removal, they filed claims with, uh, with the Cherokee government for some of these things that were done to them. Um, and it, it ranges from, you know, from assault battery to having livestock stolen and mm -hmm. all kinds of things that it was just, it was a systematic pressure. Uh, yeah. That's why when you talk about the Indian Removal Act, there was a lot of stuff that precipitated that. Mm -hmm. uh, to your point, Joe, a lot of it was just you know, neighbor on neighbor kind of pushing and pushing and pushing. Right. Yeah, in Georgia, the uh, Cherokee could not uh, go to court and make a claim against their you know, people uh, stealing their property and whatnot. And uh, so it was, you know, they had no rights at all. And that's where, uh, you know, New Echota, which was in Georgia, uh, kind of the capital of. Um, you know, for the Cherokee, uh, they moved, they had to get out of Georgia, so they moved to Tennessee, southern Tennessee, the southeast Tennessee there, and um, to Red Clay. Red Clay is now State Park, but um, that was kind of the, the new um, capital. Um, and so that was a lot of, when the actual removal happened uh, in that Cleveland, Tennessee area, Chattanooga, 
that's where majority of the Cherokees had moved out of Georgia or had to move out for their own health. And they, it's, it's worth saying that that uh, village, that representative village, historic village that's there now, was a representation of the capital before they were pushed out. And it was a Georgia militia that came in and, and actually went to that town and started going building by building. And they took the printing press, which printed the Cherokee Phoenix, and took all the type and dumped it into the well. And I mean, they just, the militia was just absolutely ruthless with those people. And, and to Graydon's point, it literally made it untenable. You could not stay there any longer. You just couldn't do it. So uh, it, was, it was a systematic campaign. And the states were, again, the states felt like they had waited on the government long enough, and they were going to take matters into their own hands. Georgia, as far as I've read, Georgia was the worst. Now, North Carolina did did some legal things, and I'm sure Tennessee did some legal things where they extended territory and basically took the land and just said, we're just going to, it's ours, we're just going to Another question. Mm -hmm. What group lived in Memphis? Well, uh, there were, basically this is Chickasaw territory uh, and owned and uh, up until 1818 when the uh, Chickasaw signed a treaty giving the whites all of West Tennessee, uh, not Mississippi, but all of West Tennessee, and uh, that's opened up Memphis. You know, like we don't have as, as uh, old a history in Memphis as they do in Nashville and East Tennessee because you know they were uh, you know, recorded history you know a lot longer because uh, this up in 1818 this was this where, where we are now is was all uh, Chickasaw territory. The reason I bring this up. My dad grew up in Memphis as, as a kid, and I can remember him talking about going down to what we know now today as Metal Museum Drive, was called California Avenue, uh, where the gun emplacements were in the park, were originally shown on all the old maps as the Indian Mounds. Uh, he and his, and his friends used to play inside those until they bricked them up. Those mounds, and this is a, that's a really good point, John, I'm glad you brought that up. The, in terms of the Chickasaws and, and Memphis, what the Chickasaws essentially did was cede their, any claims to this area. But the mounds that you're referring to, and also the earthworks and whatnot out at Chuckalisa, um, the local historians who, and from the University of Memphis who've studied at Chuckalisa and all, will talk about that as a, actually a much earlier group of people. Mm -hmm that prior to even the Chickasaws being here, there was an earlier group, kind of the mound building culture. Uh, same ones that were responsible, I think, for Pinson Mounds and a few of those others. Um, that same culture was here, and they were not here all the time. They were in and out. Memphis was occupied and abandoned and occupied and abandoned, according to those historians that I've spoken to here locally. And the, the mound you're referring to, I think, was from that era. Um, now, the Chickasaws, having been in this area, would certainly have recognized that history and, and, and respected it, and it, it could have very well have been some of their ancestors. I don't, I haven't studied their, their prehistory, so I don't, I couldn't say for sure. But at least at the 1830s, the Chickasaws were the ones that they went to and said, okay, let's, you're the ones in this area, we're going to get you to sign off on this. So. Okay. Uh, how was Tennessee involved? Uh, what areas did they come to? And were they, was, was, was Tennessee receptive or, or not? Well, East Tennessee is where, you know, part of the, the natural uh, setting and, and homes of a lot of the Cherokees. And um, they went all the way up to East Tennessee and, uh, you know, Bristol area and, and those some of the upper, what they refer to as the upper towns. Uh, so it was, you know, their, their original homeland was part, you know, in the, Tennessee on this side of the Smoky Mountains, and um, after they had they had to leave Georgia, uh, you know they settled in Tennessee, and so when the removal actually happened and it started in in uh, 1838, um, they came in and and just took folks out of their homes and and uh, put them in the stockades, and uh, that's where a lot of Misery was, and it, originally everybody was supposed to go by water, by the water route. Mm. Uh, it's going to be the most merciful and, and fastest. And um, in 1838, it just so happened 
and, and several several um, detachments went by water uh, down the Tennessee River, you know, up to Mississippi, came you know, came through here and you know, would stop in Memphis, um, and then down to the Arkansas River and up the Arkansas River to uh, to Oklahoma. So that was the plan, the original plan, was to go by by water, and uh, they didn't think it would take that long, and and uh, but it just so happened. In 1838, there was a bad drought, and the rivers uh, dried up, and the river boats, the steamboats, flat, you know, even the flatboats could not uh, maneuver uh, the rivers. So they were in these stockades for mostly all summer. They stopped the, uh, the land route uh, at that time, and then just you know were held in in there until September, and um, you know John Ross said. Let us, we'll, you know, let's let us out of these stockades. We'll take ourselves to Oklahoma, and so it was agreed that um, the Cherokees would, you know, do their own attachment. Actually, uh, that they did not have any military uh, accompaniment going through, uh, you know, on the detachments. And uh, you know, you might want to talk about some of the, you know, the thirteen different detachments. Uh, but in Tennessee, from Tennessee. Uh, the binge route went uh, basically from Fort Payne, Alabama, up through Pulaski, and over to Paris, Tennessee, and then up to Columbus, Kentucky, and uh, into Missouri. The Bell route, which came through Memphis, you know, started in Fort Cass, uh, which is east of Chattanooga, Cleveland area, and came through Chattanooga, and followed what is now Highway 64. And at that time, it was not a U.S. highway, uh, but just a dirt road, and uh, came into uh, you know, Oliver. Well, it crossed Pulaski, uh, Oliver, and uh, into Memphis and Shelby County, and um, went from Memphis across the river there on by ferry, um, and uh, went to uh, Marion, Arkansas. And uh, it just so happened that the uh, federal government built the military road from Marion to Little Rock. It's a brand new superhighway, you know, done by the, what was, you know, technically the Corps of Engineer kind of thing. Uh, and it's, you can go to Village Creek State Park and you can see some of the actual route, some of the, you know, part of the uh, hike, it's a good hiking trail. Uh, you can see Trail of Tears, as it was um, you know, back original version was. Uh, and then they went on to, you know, through our Little Rock to, uh, to Oklahoma. So the northern route all went from you know, Chattanooga area to Murfreesboro, Nashville, Hopkinsville, and uh, into Kentucky, and into Illinois, and Missouri. And uh, it's one of those things that um, I always kind of say that uh, you know they started off in September and it was not a very good time to to start traveling, especially by foot. So, and southern portion of the state really got heavy traffic, not just from the Cherokees but from the other tribes. Because if you think about it, you had Muskogee Creek coming from Alabama, and the, the natural route coming out of Alabama is to go north into Tennessee and cut across. The southern part of Tennessee. You had the Choctaws coming from down in Mississippi, and then the Chickasaws were literally right there on the border, uh, in the in the northern counties of Mississippi. So the trails and the roads of the time all led to Memphis, literally. And so you had people funneling in as early as 1832, into what is now Shelby County, in through the city and down to the docks, because as Greg pointed out one of the initial modes of transportation the government was counting on and later the tribes counted on was going to be the steamboats. Unfortunately, the steamboats, even with the weather circumstances, even when the water was high enough, those steamboats weren't always quite as reliable. And there were some, some issues with steamboats around Memphis when the tribes were coming through Memphis. There was a group of, um, I believe it was Choctaws or Muscogee Creek, I can't recall. Right. The creeks. It may have been the Creeks. They were supposed to get on the boat. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was the Chickasaws, and they had found out they were supposed to get a bunch of them onto the boat, and they found out that one of the boats had sunk, 
earlier on with some Muskogee Creeks on it, and 300 Creeks had died as a result of that. And so they, they, the, their people that were handling that removal had a really hard time convincing those people that boats were a great idea. Um, because if you think about it, if you've ever been out in the middle of the Mississippi on anything, it, you feel a little bit vulnerable in the middle of that river. And, uh, and let's, let's also understand the tribes in question, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee Creek, uh, these folks were all river people, so they understood the power of rivers. Their settlements were, were along major river thoroughfares throughout, whether it be the Tennessee River or the Mississippi River or the Chattahoochee River if you're in Georgia or the, all those rivers. So they understood the power of rivers, not only as a, as a, as a point of navigation, but that there was a spiritual power to rivers as well. So when you, when you hear of people dying on the river, that, that's a, that signals a whole lot of danger to, to native people in a lot of different ways. So um, there were a lot of problems at Memphis because they were trying to get them on boats. There was one particular episode where some uh, tribes came in and there was a cholera epidemic in Memphis at that point that had been traveling up and down from, they said, from St. Louis and it had been brought down by the boats, the steamboats coming from St. Louis. So Memphis was already suffering with some of this itself and then now we've got hundreds if not thousands of people uh, f you know, filling into the city and, and down on the waterfront there waiting on these boats and you've got cholera now that's going throughout the city and that, that created, as you can imagine, all kinds of havoc. Um, I was telling somebody in a presentation not long ago, you have to imagine that all of these tribes were coming in by the hundreds and sometimes the thousands and I hate to use a, an example of a really great thing like Memphis Music Fest and Barbecue Fest, but we know how big that waterfront gets and how many people crowd in there for those festivals. Imagine that that many people or more are crowding in and they brought their furniture with their, and their animals with them and their what little belongings they had in their wagons and, their, you know, and they're camped out there. It isn't just a weekend thing. They're camped out there until the boats come or until the wagons are arranged and they have to have... So you can imagine what, what Memphis might have been feeling like in, the, in those 1830s as these tribes wave after wave would come through here. Um, coming, coming and ending up, uh, they would travel through the eastern part of the county, but they would eventually sit in Memphis for a period of time until they could get across. And that was, uh, I can only imagine what What, what is Memphis the route? And, and I, I'm confused. Yeah. You know, when you're in the first grade, you're subject to two, three, two or three things. You're subject in Memphis to be taken to a cotton gin. You're subject to go pick strawberries because your mother tells you that picked strawberries taste better than, than store-bought, which is a lie. And then you're also loaded up in the first grade and taken to Chuck Alyssa. Mm -hmm. And the only impression that I ever had growing up of Indians was on TV and going there and I'm sorry to say, this is my, it's not my area of history, I don't know what group lives there. Those were some earlier tribes. I've talked to the historians out there, a um, number of whom are with the University of Memphis, um, and the consensus that I've heard is that those were earlier tribes. Um, they were from a mound-building culture um, that was present in, throughout the South uh, very early, and that and that they didn't actually live at Chuckalisa in the way we would think about that. Mm -hmm. That they would go in there for a little while, they'd be there for a while, and then they'd leave. That Memphis was during that early period was in kind of this state of flux. It was occupied and unoccupied and occupied and unoccupied. And if you think about it, that with I'm sure a lot of that had to do with nature mm -hmm. and the way the river flows and didn't flow, or as in the case of the of the New Madrid quake flowed backwards. There, you know. There, so a lot of Memphis, I think, was subject in those early, early days before a lot of population of European folks came through, uh, and even after, was subject to a lot of natural uh, occurrences that, that caused it to be inhabitable, very inhabitable in some points in history and not so inhabitable in other points in history. Um, and that you see that actually across Tennessee. I mean, the Nashville area, um, people will ask about that, and it, it tends to be hunting grounds and some inhabita some habitation. Some tribes from the north might come down in that area and hunt and then go back. The Cherokee would certainly come into that area and hunt and then go back. So Memphis itself, up until the Chickasaws 
uh, in that 1830 period, it was a it was kind of a mound building culture, many 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 generations before that. And that those are the ones that you see represented at Chuckalisa most often. Fortunately, Chuckalisa had the wisdom to have Choctaw representatives there mm -hmm. to help people understand not only the mound building culture but the Choctaw culture, and then um, and then the Chickasaws are are represented because of their proximity. When they were moved and relocated, how do you think that affected? Were they able to restart their lives? Were they able to get back what they lost? Boy, that's a really good question. I, I mean, in my from what I've studied and the people I've talked to, I, I think, certainly in, I, can, I can speak a little more about Cherokee history. As that's my personal background and I've got family history I can tell you but in many cases it left a, a scar uh, on those nations now they they eventually did get back got reorganized got themselves got their governments set up again and whatnot um, only to be hit uh, several decades later with the Dawes Allotment Act but that's another issue but but in many cases specifically for the Cherokee the divisions that occurred, because not everybody agreed on removal. Uh, some of the, the tribes thought, okay, this is what we've got to do and we're going to do it. Uh, we don't like it, but we'll do it. Chickasaws uh, moved to a person, moved and didn't leave anybody behind and there's nobody here from the Chickasaws. Um, but then, you know, other tribes like the Cherokee and the Muscogee Creek and a lot of these folks, they there was a lot of division among them. The Treaty of New Echota that Graydon mentioned a little bit earlier was not universally accepted. It was a small group of Cherokees that signed that document. And the legitimate government didn't sign it. The legitimate government protested it. Um, and the rift that was created by that treaty, uh, I'll be honest, you can still talk about it today. If you go out to Oklahoma, you'll still hear people talk about the treaty party and the national party and the, you know, the people that resisted removal and the people that came before. Um, it created a, an incredible wave that I think you can still see in some of the some of the cultures and some of the communities even today. What is the group that's down in central Mississippi? There's a group down there that has a, a community. I know they, they've got a casino. I, I, they've got their own fire department. I've been it's, there. I've seen <laughs> Mississippi so. Band of Choctaws. They Very were cool. they were one of um, of the five civilized tribes, and by the way, we say civilized, what we mean by that is these are people who were, were organizing themselves very much like their neighbors. They were reading and writing, they had their own language, they had their own government, that's why they called them civilized. Uh, but you have the Mississippi Band of Choctaws, you have the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians in Cherokee, North Carolina, uh, you have the Porch Band of Muscogee Creek down in Lower Alabama, and then you've got Seminoles just all over Florida. Um, and these were people who were, uh, this is the other thing about removal and about the trail that you don't hear about a lot. The treaties that were signed, there were usually clauses in them. And in the Treaty of New Echota, it was Article Number 12. I had to look that up to make sure. And in those treaties, there was a little, a little loophole that said, any Indians who are desirous of staying in this territory and, and are averse to removal, averse to removal is the way they, they talked about it, can stay, but, there's always a but there, right? And But you essentially become a citizen of the state that you are in, and you essentially give up any claims to the land that you might have had as a tribe. You're not gonna be organized as a tribe, you're not gonna be holding governments and having courts like you did, you're gonna be a citizen like anybody else. And they made those restrictions, the government, when they wrote the treaties, made those onerous enough that they felt like there weren't going to be a whole lot of people that wanted to do that because it really cut at the heart of who they were. But there were some that did, and there were some Choctaws that, that stayed and became tenant farmers down in Mississippi. The Eastern Band of Cherokee, you had fascinating history there with a group of people up in the hills and around Okunalufti and whatnot who, who did stay and who took advantage of that and became citizens of the state of North Carolina. Same with the, the Porch Band of Creeks, and I don't know about the Seminoles. Uh, I don't know how they, if they took that particular route or if there was another. Seminoles had a slightly different history, but the, the ones in this area that stayed um, eventually were able to sort of pick themselves back up, reacquire land in various ways, and, and 
establish a presence. The Chickasaws are the only ones that don't have that. All of their people went. Hi, everybody. Just a quick note to remind you, go out and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Go out to our website at ourmemphishistory.com and also subscribe to the website. We'll push out our blog posts when we push those out. All right. Thanks, everybody. Back to the show. The actual detachment that came through Memphis was what they refer to as the Bell Route, which John Bell uh, was the uh, director, not director, but the uh, conductor, um, that uh, led the detachment. And this group that came through Memphis was part of the treaty folks. and it's one of these things that, like politics today, uh, the uh, traditional band did, you know, they hated the treaty folks for signing the land, land away and uh, you know, having to, you know, deadline when they had to get out. But uh, about 660 people left East Tennessee, came through here. And uh, when they got to Memphis, uh, there's a, a note in the, uh, the records you know, federal records, that part of the bill route went up to Nashville and was talking to some of the uh, detachments up there. And what it says in the record is that they were causing dissension and they were run off. And uh, so I'm thinking that they, because the treaty folks were the more educated and, and, and uh, learned people, uh, they knew that going through Memphis and through Arkansas, a straight line to Oklahoma was better than, uh, especially in, you know, in September, uh, you know, the winter coming on, taking the northern route, which was the long way around, uh, which they got frozen in Kentucky. They couldn't get, you know, the river was frozen. They couldn't cross. Um, you know, they didn't have any ferries or boats to, you know, because the river was frozen. So they had to, stuck in Kentucky. Finally got across into Illinois and got frozen there again. The Mississippi was froze over. Mm-hmm. And so that's where they had a lot of the grief and, and weather-related deaths, um, you know, in, in that winter period going the long way around. And I always thought it was politics because, you know, we, the treaty folks came this way, you know, we're not going to do anything you guys suggest or, or yeah, if you want us to go that way, we're going the other way. Uh, so I thought it was politics, but I learned, you know, a little while ago, that uh, the Delta down here, um, which we all love and, and respect, the Delta and proud of the Delta, but back in the 1830s and before, the Delta was just a a swamp, and it was uh, impassable, and so the normal the normal route was to go around. The, uh, the swamp around the uh, mountains over in Arkansas and uh, you know, come in that long way. So it, they went the long, the long way, but that was just kind of the way it was yeah. uh, because they didn't know that there was a brand new road um, that the military had done uh, you know, from basically across from Memphis all the way to Little Rock. And uh, you know, this military road was the um, superhighway at the time of uh, that, and it was built basically for the removal uh, of the Indians, but, um, you know, the main party uh, wasn't going to have any of that, and they, they went the long way around. We've talked a little bit about it, but they didn't just pick up and go, I mean, there were all the plans, but not everybody made it to the end there, where That's they true. were going. I think there was a pretty heavy death toll, and just, you mentioned earlier about the the river being the kind of humane way to go, but if you didn't go that way, and a lot didn't, what happened? What happened there? I mean, is that you had a lot of deaths? Uh, the, the figure that you hear quoted probably the most often is the one from the Cherokee forced removal, and that was for one quarter of the population, four thousand out of sixteen sixteen thousand, yeah, that that died. That that was just the Cherokee removal at that particular period of time. Right. That doesn't encompass any of the deaths from the other tribes. Yeah. The 300, the Creek, Muscogee Creek people that perished on that boat or the, the number that, you know, that had cholera or died because of exposure or, I mean, they, the, these, some of these people were older and, you know, they... Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of deaths in the the stockades and the, the detention camps, uh, just from dysteria and all the different diseases that come in with that. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot before they even left. But uh, the, going up the north northern route, you know, the weather was a uh, yes. really big uh, contributing factor. Yeah. They have uh, there are some diaries that were kept by soldiers that were accompanying these groups. And it's really sad to read them because they would go day by day and talk about, you know, so-and-so died last night. They give names. So-and-so, mm -hmm. old so-and-so died last night. And we buried uh, buried him or her along the road or mm -hmm. along the trail. And Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think John Ross's wife uh, is is buried in Little Rock. Am I not mistaken about that? Am I, uh, Quady Ross, was she not buried somewhere in Arkansas? She may be, uh, but she was on the, one of the boats, wasn't she, I think? I seem to think that there was somewhere along the road near the trail. You know, that she died and was buried. That was John Ross was the chief, elected chief of the Cherokees at that particular point, and and remained so the longest serving chief I think that we've had in history. So even his wife, so it didn't it didn't choose it didn't play favorites. Um, and and again, that's not counting the, those of the Chickasaws and the, the Choctaws and the Muscogee Creek people. But, the the actual. Term Trail of Tears was uh, in 1832 uh, an interview uh, in Little Rock as the uh, Choctaws were passing through town. Uh, somebody asked him and said, "This is you know, this Trail of Tears." Uh, so it didn't originally come out with the you know, the Cherokees. It, it was a coined phrase uh, and includes all of the tribes. You know, it was a very traumatic and and um, sad situation was uh, you know, for all the tribes. Yeah. So bring us up to 2021. We, we sit here in the first part of the year. What, what's being done? What can still be done? What, how is this being kept alive right now? Yeah. One, one last thing is that even though they did have a lot of deaths and you know, major part of the population, uh, there were births yeah, on the sure. trail. Yeah. So when some of the diaries and records show that you know had so many deaths, we had so many babies. You know, six or seven babies, you know, may have been born along the way, which, to me, shows that you know there's just you know just the stamina and mm -hmm. and uh, you know the, the grit that the people had even having to walk all that way. So to answer your question, I think the the National Park Service um, received funds, and Graham, you can tell me what year this was because I don't recall off the top of my head. Um, because of the, the trauma around the, the forced removal of the Cherokees, the uh, federal government and the Park Service, yes, yeah. have funds allocated to mark and, and in as many ways as we can memorialize those journeys, those paths that were taken, particularly by the Cherokees. Um, that's, the, that's the kind of the, the textbook definition of what that's the used main, for. The main focus. Main focus, right. But, but it's also uh, thanks to organizations like the Trail of Tears Association, which Greg and I both belong to. Um, not only are, are we marking those and trying to find those and explore them, but we're also trying to keep the conversation going up to now uh, with not only the Cherokees, but our, our neighboring tribes, with the Chickasaws, with the Choctaws, which is why I thought it was fantastic that uh, when Graydon suggested bringing representatives of the four tribes here in 2019, for a marker dedication down on Mud Island. Um, and there was a sort of a mini symposium where they were able to stand up and tell their stories to anybody that would come and listen. And those stories are still alive. The stories, both the history and the, and the stories that were told and, and, and all that is very much alive with the tribes today. Um, I think the Trail of Tears Association is a great venue for guiding the Park Service to make sure that the story is told accurately and is told with the voices that are still here today. And that's that's big, to Mark's point, that's a big thing, is that we are still here today. Mm -hmm. We do still remember this, and and we, we want to share it, not to make people feel guilty or to try and to say, oh, woe is me, but to say, hey, let's remember this so we don't do it again. And, and so we understand why why Indian people live where they do, and and that they're still alive and still here. Yeah, it was 1995. Uh, the national, oh, the 
federal government issued a uh, or created the Trail of Tears as a historical trail, just like the Oregon Trail, the Santa Fe Trail. Uh, most times, those had uh, advocates, uh, ancestors, or whatever it might have been that uh, you know got those things designated as a historical trail. Uh, the federal government said, let's do this and then get people together <laughs> to help support it. And uh, I was one of the uh, charter members on, on the uh, first meeting we had, which was actually in Little Rock at the time. But uh, the, national, the National Trail of Tears Association, uh, you know, there's a website for that, um, is uh, the national uh, party in each state uh, all the states have their own chapters and you know like we are members of the Tennessee uh, Trail of Tears uh, Association slash TN for Tennessee and every state uh, and you can be members of different states I was uh, when I was doing studying in in uh, uh, Illinois uh, went up to Golconda and, and, and I was a member of the Illinois chapter for a couple of years and uh, uh, and went through a lot of area over there and, uh, and that. But it's saying that the association is um, live and well, and we're having you know every annual meetings uh, for the association. Um, and again, the, each each nation now, the Cherokee Nation, uh, Choctaw Nation, you know, they have their own festivals in in Oklahoma, and, and uh, uh, so you know we're trying to tell the story and and uh, you know keep the um, uh, honor the folks that made the trail right. and survived and and uh, are prospering now. Do you all have regular meetings or are you having to do that online or how you have your meetings because of COVID is not having meetings? Or? Well, traditionally, we all the meetings we have, most members are in East Tennessee and uh, we have had uh, uh, some Middle Tennessee, but you know, we're, we're kind of the, the West Coast uh, uh, members of the far, what I call far away Cherokees. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's the thing that uh, the Zoom thing, it really is, is uh, we, we're doing it Zoom now. Yeah. And, uh, and it, I can be part of the, the regular yeah. quarterly meetings we have that, uh, periodically. So the Zoom uh, is really been a blessing for um, for us here. And Lord uh, knows we've been using that a lot lately. Uh, well, we'll link to all of those uh, resources in the show notes, and also the map that Graydon talked about earlier. We'll make sure that that's that's put up. There are plenty of opportunities to learn about this. Um, and to Joe's earlier point, I think I think that's changed the old trips to Chuck Lisa being your own only exposure to Native people. Fortunately, I think it's changed, and now. Thanks to the internet and thanks to things like Zoom, you can actually experience these sorts of meetings and, and hear these sort of people speaking in their own words. And each of the nations has their own website. That's the other thing I would suggest is the Southeastern tribes all have their own websites. A lot of them have multimedia capabilities and have their own newspapers and their own communication. And I would always highly suggest that people go and listen to what those people have to say listen to the tribes. Uh, if you have a chance to visit when things get get to be open again, uh, they all have museums and, and places where you can go person to person, but there's plenty of stuff online. I would start with each of the tribes and and just make yourself aware. Again, it's not about guilting anybody or trying to poke, poke any fingers at anybody. It's just understanding and and understanding what that, how that shaped not only the tribes, but shaped Memphis shaped Tennessee, shaped all the surrounding states and the whole southeast. Yeah, well, we, we definitely try to keep history going here. And, Absolutely. Uh, not, uh, not erase it and not forget about it, so I uh, appreciate One of the things we are doing is, um, if you go down Stage Road there in Bartlett area, you'll see these brown markers that mm -hmm. say the original route. Yep. Uh, we have some uh, from 240, or I guess 40, on up to uh, Willis uh, Bridge there, going over to... Um, to the Mud Island, mm -hmm. um, you know, again, you know, a few years ago, we were able to get a marker on Mud Island for the land route. They crossed there. They took ferries across, um, you know, from that spot, mm -hmm. basically from uh, the 
where the pyramid is is kind of where the riverboat landing was. Right. But um, uh, you know, a few years back in 2013, we we put a marker down on uh, uh, Tom Lee Park down there for the water route, mm -hmm. and uh, so we both have the water route and the land route that came through Memphis. And there's one little stretch, basically the uh, 64 coming in from Chattanooga, uh, the route went straight to Raleigh. Mm. And uh, from Raleigh, turned left and you know, came down the Raleigh Road, yeah. uh, which is now Jackson Avenue, right. and until it got down downtown in the, the Willis Bridge area. Right. But uh, uh, we have got approval and uh, it's been, uh, money's been set aside uh, in this year's federal budget to be able to get some more signs up, basically telling folks that Austin P there to uh, turn left, <laughs> uh, you know. So just directional signs, brown directional signs, uh, we're, you know, trying to get a few more in Memphis so that people can yeah. get, you know, get through Shelby County uh, yeah. with the whole route being marked. You know exactly where they went. Well, it's been an honor to have you guys around the table, uh, Jason and Graydon and Joe. Appreciate you. you doing this, and uh, we appreciate the information that's been shared. We'll link to all these in the show notes, and uh, just uh, we'll be back soon. Thanks. Thank you, Paul. Thank, Thank you very so much. much. Thank you. We appreciate it. Yeah.